Welcome to Keith Knight, Don't Tread on Anyone. Today we have the uh, great James Corbett with us of the Corbett Report. Uh, you can check out his work at the CorbettReport.com. My favorite video, by the way, James interviews a Bohemian Grove member. It's great. Uh, James, how are you? I'm uh, I'm tickled pink that you even would remember that. I mean, that's that's going back a number of years. So yeah, good choice. Thank you. James, what is voluntarism and why are you a voluntarist? Uh, voluntarism is uh, the, the ethical principle that uh, any relations between adults should be based on the principle that we are in a voluntary interaction. Uh, it's very simple. And I think this goes back to basic precepts about the fundamental underlying morality that we all seem to be working from and that we all understand even as children that yes, you shouldn't be trying to take someone else's stuff without their permission. You shouldn't be trying to uh, punch someone to get them to do something that they don't want to do. These are basic ethical principles that we all give lip service to, service to, but for some reason, there is an overriding thing that, that, that takes over our psychology when you introduce the government. There is some other entity that can transcend these basic ethical principles that we have in our day-to-day -day interactions with each other and that we abide by in 99% of our life, in our daily interactions with other human beings. But somehow there's certain people with certain shiny badges and certain hats that can override that. And I'm just one of the people who say, no, I think this should apply 100% to all of our interactions. They should all be, be based on voluntary interaction. If someone wants to do something great, if someone does not want to do something, they, there is no one with any authority that can make them do that thing. So how have the masses been convinced, even people with like eight year college degrees, they still believe that a group of people called Congress or police or military, that this principle doesn't apply to them. How have people been fooled into buying uh, something so ridiculous? Uh, I think it's been a process of indoctrination that has been going on for centuries, if not millennia. So I understand why it is exceptionally difficult to break through that kind of conditioning. And of course, back in the days of old, uh, the justifications were generally of a religious or at least quasi-religious nature. I mean, you literally had the uh, the Egyptian emperors or the, uh, the Japanese emperors were literally gods on earth, literally descended from the gods, and people had to worship them. Um, but that, of course, transmogrified by, by the Middle Ages in Europe, you start to develop the idea, well, no, I mean, the king isn't God, but the king is God's chosen representative. It is the divine right to rule or the divine mandate from heaven uh, as it was in China. So there was still some sort of quasi-religious aspect to it. Of course, with uh, the, the Renaissance and with the Enlightenment and with the development of modern science and all of that, that, that type of justification for why there are certain people who can tell us what to do had to go out the window and had to be replaced. So that was replaced eventually by this model of democracy. No, 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 no. You see, it's not that there's some, you know, it's not God choosing these leaders. It's you. You are choosing the leaders. You see, and we're giving it into your power. So these are your representatives. They represent you, and they get to tell you what to do. And uh, it's exceptionally effective because people buy into the system. And you are trained from a very, very young age that one of the most important things you can do, your civic duty, this thing that was great and glorious that people have fought and died for and, and spilled blood for, is this right to go into a voting booth every four years and take a box and choose your, your slave master, essentially. 
Um, that is indoctrinated from such a young age that most people don't think to question it. And I too, uh, I assume like most people in the audience, never thought to question that when I was growing up. And I remember, I remember even, I, I can't remember specifically, I think it was Family Ties or, you know, something like that. They had the episode where, you know, Alex Keaton gets to do his first vote or whatever. And, oh, he goes to, gets to go in the voting booth and it's this great thing. And they have this, you know, this swelling of pride and everything. And here I am as a Canadian watching this, you know, obviously uh, getting the secondhand propaganda from America, but thinking uh, when I was a kid, oh, you know, it is important. You got to vote. So when when I got to that magical age of 18, where suddenly you you can vote. Uh, I did vote in the first federal election in Canada that I was uh, uh, able to, and uh, and I thought I thought you know I've done my bit. I've I've done something great, and it was a throwaway vote because I was voting for a uh, the far left party at that time um, in a jurisdiction where it was clearly everyone was voting right. So it was a throwaway vote, and I knew it, but I didn't care. I was still doing the right thing, and blah blah blah. But obviously, fast forward a number of years, not only uh, do what I, I mean, I can't even imagine, I, I can't even imagine in this situation right now, what party I would be voting for if I was a voter. Like what, I can't even put myself in those shoes anymore, let alone to actually think about going through with it in, in real life. So I, things have fundamentally changed for me. And I think the snapping point, the breaking point for me for anyone who isn't familiar with the Corbett Report or the work that I do, I, I think one of the trans, trans, tr not transformational, but the kind of the breakthrough event or or the breakthrough thing for me to get me questioning the entire political paradigm was uh, uh, initially my research into 9-11 and finding out more about 9-11 and all of the lies that were told about 9-11 and then it was a snowball going downhill from there, talking, thinking about the, the monetary system and all of this stuff, getting deeper and deeper down the rabbit hole, as they say, and discovering that the entire, I mean, everything, the monetary system itself and, and the, the two-party political paradigm and all of this nonsense is complete nonsense. It's, been, it's wool that's pulled over people's eyes to keep them from discovering the really fundamental truths, asking the real questions. Uh, you know, where does money come from? Who does create it? How? Under what mechanism? And by and who grants that authority? And and who benefits from that? And who loses out because of that? These kind of fundamental issues aren't discussed because that's not the political party game. You have these political football issues that they move up and down the field. So when I started to discover that, I remember distinctly. Uh, it was two thousand six. And uh, the, the, the midterm elections were happening in, in the United States. And I remember thinking at that time, so I was discovering all the stuff about 9-11 and all the, and of course there was the Iraq war and all of the heinous war crimes that the Bush administration had been committing. Suddenly the Democrats get into power in the, in the House and the Senate, I believe, in 2006. And I thought, well, this is it. They're gonna start all the investigations. They're gonna start all the congressional committees. They're gonna, it's gonna blow everything out. There's gonna be war cr cr crime trials. This is it, clearly, because it's a two-party system, and now the other party is going to get into power, and they're going to do what they're supposed to do, right? But at that time, I was starting to listen to these crazy conspiracy theorists who were saying things like, no, it's all a charade. They're not going to do anything. Uh, they're, they're, nothing's going to happen. They're going to continue moving on, and the next person who gets into power is just going to continue all the powers that Bush has already taken. And I thought, well, for me, that was an experiment. That was a test. 
Okay, so either my intuition, my 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 whole political upbringing that no, it's a two party system, and the other party's gonna gonna prosecute the the, the crimes. That that intuition was being tested, and I thought, well, we'll see. Well, I mean, I can actually see what happens. And the very first thing that happened in 2006, I think it was Pelosi, right? Got, got in and said, well, no, impeachment's off the table. We're not even going to think about that. No, we're not going that way. <laughs> and, and then, of course, Obama takes uh, control and, of course, just continues all the wars, uh, ramps up the drone wars. I mean, everything just, just continues. It was just a pass off of football from one side of a phony controlled paradigm to another. And that was really, I mean, that was the point at which I was, I realized what was going on and that this political game is just totally a game. But it's, again, people buy into that game and every single election cycle in my entire life, and I imagine for the uh, remainder of my life, every single election cycle, this is the most important election ever. You have to vote in this one. It's so important. If the other guys get into power this time, it's all over. We're done. The, you know, the country is finished. And the World War III and blah, blah, blah. If you don't vote the right way this time, we're dead. Every single time. And uh, it just continues. And people get so caught up in it that they will not question that. And that's is disappointing, but it is a fundamental part of human psychology that I think if we are voluntarists and we want to break people out of that conditioning, we have to do some serious thinking about how best to do that, given the fact that people are so, I don't want to say so easily, but so thoroughly and, and completely um, uh, led along by the nose, by the hook in their nose uh, that is the political football game. You have a great short video called 9-11 Suspects Robert Baer. Last name is spelled uh, B-A-E-R. Now, I can't turn on my television without Stormy Daniels and Russia being thrown in my face for hours on end. Why is it so hard to get people to talk about things that matter? 9-11 truth, the monetary system, invading countries, Waco, Randy Weaver. It's so hard to get them to talk about these things that really matter, but they can't shut up about Stormy Daniels. I think it wouldn't be hard at all to get people to talk about things that really matter if you asked questions that really matter. I mean, it's always the question of who is setting the conversation and in what way. And uh, so obviously, whoever's got the microphone has that control, right? And it, when it comes to CNN or whatever, of course, there are corporate paymasters that are tied into the political system, that are tied into the banking system and all of that. It's all, of course, one part and parcel of the establishment, whatever you want to call it. And yeah, no. Are they going to spend their time getting to the bottom of these core key issues that we that I think most people are actually interested in? Or are they going to distract people with lurid sensationalist nonsense? They're going to distract people with lurid sensationalist nonsense. And uh, I, I think people intuitively understand that. That's why, that's precisely why the alternative media has taken off in such a big way in the last couple of decades. It, it's. I think it's like this in every time, in every context, whenever you give people a platform or, or that people discover a different way of getting around the gatekeeping, they will do so. And uh, it will take off because people resonate with things that are deep and important and true. For the most part, of course, there are people out there who don't care and just want to see whatever Stormy Daniels and Russiagate and whatever else. But I think there are a lot of people for whom this this resonates. And that's why sites like myself and, and others have taken off in such a big way in the last decade or two. Um, but it's interesting, specifically, you bring up Robert Baer, who, of course, is a commentator 
that uh, CNN and others often rely on and actually go to him as a geopolitical analyst because he used to be the CIA agent and, you know, in in, the, in Persia and Middle East and Iran and what have you. And and so he he's this expert that they have on. I've never once seen them ever once question him about the fact that he admitted on camera that he knew the guy who in uh, who cashed out the day before 9-11 and his brother worked in the White House. That seems like a pretty big story. Hey, CNN, I have a huge story for you. This is it right here in your lap. This guy's on your network every week. You could ask him at any time, but for some reason, they're just not that interested. Uh, go figure, huh? Well, yeah, I mean, it's like uh, they're so worried that Trump might be caught on camera saying the N-word. And I'm like, he's openly starving thousands of people in Yemen and promises to have the military shoot anyone who brings food to the starving people. It's like that is more of a scandal than anything we could uh, mash up. But same thing with like, I, I remember... Uh, being young and being like, George Bush is so bad. I mean, he pronounces nuclear, nuclear. Oh, this guy's the worst. Meanwhile, <laughs> meanwhile, he's piggybacking off daddy's war, which starved another half a million people in Iraq a decade earlier. At these, uh, now, I-, I wanted to ask you a question. I, I know we're on uh, limited time here. I know you're busy. Uh, but I, I want to see how you uh, respond to this question when you're only talking to someone who isn't, you know, totally deep into this stuff as we are, uh, what lies have been used to persuade Americans into supporting wars? Pick a war and I'll, I'll tell you the lie that was used for it. Uh, there are a number of them. So for a, a more comprehensive list than we could pro- possibly go through in this uh, short conversation, I would direct people to corporatereport.com slash war lies, one word, war lies. And I just did a podcast recently on debunking a century of war lies, which in and of itself is still only scraping the surface of the number of uh, lies that you could go through even in the past century um, in terms of what lies have been used to start wars. Um, Generally speaking, there is in our modern day and age, there is a lie that is used to precipitate a war precisely because we are in the time of democracy and in the time of volunteer armies, you have to get people motivated for war. So how can people possibly be motivated to send their sons, and I guess their daughters these days, uh, off to fight and die in foreign theaters, halfway around the globe where people don't even know where it is and don't know anyone there and don't care? What can you possibly do to motivate people? Well, there has to be some sort of foundational event. And that foundational event is time after time after time a lie. You could go back to the Spanish-American War if you wanted. And speaking of the media and the establishment and how that uh, perpetuates things, you could look at Hearst, uh, 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 the Hearst Publishing. And I can't remember what his paper was at that time. But anyway, the the yellow scare and all of that stuff that he was doing, the yellow journalism, that's where it comes from. And of course, remember the Maine and all of that, the... The sinking of the Maine, which of course now we discovered, oh wait, it probably actually wasn't the uh, the, uh, the the Spanish doing that. Um, but more more recently, uh, you can look at uh, Lusitania, 1915. It was sunk. It was this dastardly, perfidious German attack on an innocent uh, passenger peace boat that was going from uh, going from New York to Liverpool, I believe. Um, but 
Uh, a couple of problems with that. Actually, it's official uh, on its official cargo manifest. It's, it's it lists things like you know so so many pounds of butter and so many pounds of whatever cheese or whatever. Um, but the actual uh, what it was actually carrying included gun cotton and other military supplies for its stated destination on the cargo manifest, which was uh, the RMS, um, the weapons sh uh, shipyard in, in England, where it was going. It was part of a military uh, supply vessel, basically. And the Germans knew this in advance. They put uh, an ad in the newspaper um, directly next to the 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 ad for the, the 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 ship itself. Hey, come sail on the Lusitania. The German government actually bought an ad to say, "Do not sail on the Lusitania. It is a valid military target." Um, and uh, ultimately, of course, it did end uh, end up getting sunk. Uh, not from the initial torpedo attack, incidentally, but from the explosions caused by the munitions that the the uh, ship was illegally and secretly carrying, which again was another part of the whole lie. Um, but then it became this big incident. Oh, the Lusitania, all these poor, in, you know, innocent civilian sh ship on this in innocent uh, uh, civilian passenger liner got sunk by these horrible Germans. And that was part of what motivated the United States public to get into the war in 1917. So um, that's just one example. World War II, you could look at Pearl Harbor. Of course, there's so much to go through with Pearl Harbor. But uh, the long story short is 1000% they knew it was coming. And uh, and there were a number of preparations that FDR and those in his administration made to basically leave Pearl Harbor as sitting ducks. They uh, they left the uh, the commanders there out to dry and uh, allowed the attack to go forward 100%. But conveniently, did station some of the important uh, destroyers and air and not aircraft carriers, but the, some of the larger ships uh, were doing you know some routine kind of uh, training exercises hundreds of miles away on that particular day for some reason or other. Uh, so they, I mean, it was 100% a setup, but again, 3000 Americans die. This is a day that'll live in infamy. Um, everyone is motivated to suddenly join the war that just, just weeks before that point, the vast majority of Americans were saying, it's not our war. We don't want to get involved. There was the big America first movement. But you have Pearl Harbor, and now suddenly everyone's joining up for the military. Let's go get those Japs and uh, yeah, the Germans and whoever else. Um, so uh, I could go on and on and on and on and on. But it, it, the important underlying point is there is always in our day and in this day and age a lie that underlies the beginning of any war. And of course, the most obvious example in our modern context is 9-11, the foundational event of the war of terror that the United States has been waging for the last couple of decades. And on that very note, I'm not sure when this particular conversation is going to air or if we are live live, but uh, in the very near future, I'm going to have a an interesting piece of that puzzle, um, specifically about how 9-11 was used to justify the Afghan war and NATO's participation in the Afghan war. It's a fascinating story. Most people don't know the details of that, but I have some interesting declassified documents that uh, that show, prove, show once again that even if you do believe the 9-11 official government conspiracy theory hook, line, and sinker, even if you believe that, they lied to NATO to get NATO involved in the Afghan war. And I have some documents coming out that, uh, that will show that conclusively. Well, on September 11th, Rumsfeld is writing a document saying, to try to find evidence to pin this on S.H. Saddam Hussein, ask Paul Wolfowitz. 
That was cited in Scott Horton's book, Fool's Errand. Uh, for, for the newer listeners that I have, uh, a book on the Lusitania I would recommend is The Lusitania by Colin Simpson. Also, John Tolan's book, Infamy for Pearl Harbor and Day of Deceit by uh, Robert Stinnett. In that book, he cites a document, the McCullen Memo, which has uh, Arthur McCullen wrote eight ways we could provoke the Japanese into attacking uh, our fleet at Pearl Harbor. All eight of those were then implemented, uh, most importantly, the Export Control Act of 1940. Yeah. Yes. And uh, just for the benefit of listeners, I did interview Robert Stinnett, so they can listen to that in my interview archives. I actually didn't know that. That's awesome. Uh, So when you have something like the McCullen Memo published in a book, it's been out for 20 years, how are conspiracies kept quiet from the public when they're so out there, but they're yet so far away? Well, it's exactly what we were talking about before with the Stormy Daniels Russiagate, you know, 24-7, rather than anything of actual substance. Yeah, in, it's it's fascinating. You can have this stuff out there in the open, and still the vast majority of the public will never have heard about it. I think there is something of a, a, a statute of limitations, not in a legal sense, but in a sort of psychological or political sense on some of these issues. If you release something about Pearl Harbor now, that even if it conclusively shows, you know, oh, you know, they they ordered the attack. I mean, I suppose a signed, you know, memo from FDR, you know, let it happen or something would probably make some news. But uh, but I mean, even if you have conclusive evidence, it's now seventy. Um, I want to say seventy years. I'm just no, almost eighty years. It's almost eighty years ago now at this point, and clearly has no political relevance in the current climate. I mean, it's not like this is going to affect any of the politicians that are in power right now. So there's some sort of mechanism that that happens where people can kind of accept things like that and just file it away as, oh yeah, well, that sort of stuff used to happen. But now, of course, it doesn't happen. There's some sort of dividing line there, and I'm not sure exactly how long that is and exactly where that happens, but it's the same thing with JFK. I I think even if it were to be revealed today that something happened, I think that that psychological mechanism, people would say, yeah, that was a conspiracy. That kind of thing used to happen half a century ago. It don't happen today. So um, I think that's one of the mechanisms at play here. And then the other, as I say, is uh, just directing people's attention in one way or another. And it's uh, for one that that was like that for me when I was first getting into this was Operation Northwoods, which uh, is interesting uh, for people who don't know. uh, Basically, this was a plan. It was uh, signed off on by the Joint Chiefs of Staff. It was sitting there on Kennedy's desk in 1962. He did not sign off on it, but it was a plan to basically, how are we going to get into Cuba uh, well, we can do this, we can do that, we can do this. So they talked about blowing up a, or using a, swapping out a passenger airplane for a drone, essentially, and then blowing it up over uh, over the ocean and blaming it on Cuba. They talked about um, uh, naval false flags that they could do. They even talked about a, a terror campaign, shooting people in Washington, D.C., snipers, whatever. They talked about all these crazy things. Luckily, Kennedy did not sign off on that. Um, But this document that came out that showed Operation Northwoods came out in 90, I think it was 98 that it was was released. And it was written about and uh, that was specifically talked about in 2001, even on ABC News and things shortly before 9-11, interestingly. Um, But most people, again, still probably haven't heard of it. Uh, It's become something in the, I guess, conspiracy world, people have probably heard about it, but outside that bubble, 
most people have never heard of this. Why is that? That's an exceptionally important document that tells you something exceptionally important about the way the the, the military mindset works, the way that secrecy works, the way that uh, motivating people for war, these war lies, it tells you so much about the world, but most people will never hear about it, even though it's freely available. You, you can go, you can search, just type it into a search engine, you can find the actual document and read it yourself, but how many people are going to do that? I did it, because that was just something that was really overwhelming for me when I discovered it, but uh, what if I'd never even discovered it, which uh, very well could have happened. And the interesting part about the Operation Northwoods document um, I don't know why, I, I just find this fascinating. That came from the, uh, the, uh, the Assassination Records Review Board that was set up in 92, I want to say, uh, under the whatever it was, the JFK Act, that was instituted after Oliver Stone's JFK movie came out and there was this renewed interest in the public. So Congress said, okay, we're going to open the records and we're going to go through and review everything. And so they set up the Assassination Records Review Board, and it worked for, I think, six years, pulling out various documents. And in, and in 1998, they, they kind of put it all out there into the public. And that's where the Operation Northwoods documents were first seen by the public, is because of that. So it's crazy the way things can pinball off each other. But anyway, so the JFK assassination leads to a movie, leads to this records review, leads to the declassification of this exceptionally foundationally important document that most people don't even know exists. Yeah, and also it's hard to think like, oh my gosh, I've been being fooled for so long. I have supported people entering a war that was based on a lie. And it's not like, well, I supported the minimum wage and that hurt people with uh, the least amount of skills and experience that people can brush off. But when they're like supporting a war, like World War One was if we're just looking at Americans, because... That's all we care about here. There were 117,000 slaves, mind you. There was a draft. And it's like, it's going to be so hard for people to say, you know what? I think the Lusitania, I agree with Patrick Beasley in his book, Room 40, that it was deliberately sent there uh, as a conspiracy. I, I think there people feel like there's blood on their hands when they've been tricked uh, on that level. Yeah, now, that's an exceptionally important point because, yes, it, obviously people don't want to face that personal culpability that they they feel they have. And, of course, I understand people who their, their sons or daughters have gone off to fight and die in a war. It's exceptionally difficult then to tell them, yeah, the war was meaningless and was based on a lie. I mean, I get that fundamentally you don't want to hear that. You want to hear that you're... Your, your son, your daughter, your husband, whatever, that their life meant something and their, their death meant something and it was important. You definitely don't want to question that. So people buy into the system in a lot of different ways. Neil deGrasse Tyson has issued a universal uh, challenge to conspiracy theorists and in saying that, give me your best piece of evidence and give me what you would have to know in order for you to change your mind. Regarding 9-11, give me one to three, your best uh, pieces of evidence for 9-11 briefly and what you would need to know to uh, change your mind. Uh, okay, well, uh, yeah, this is the one. This is actually something I think about often because when I come back to 9-11, I know have studied it so much. I know so many different things that I always think, well, what? It, so what is the one, two, three? Like, what, what do I narrow it down to? And everyone talks about the, the building collapses. So I, uh, that's great. Other people can talk about that. I look at the money trail. I look at uh, the, the air defense or lack thereof. 
Um, and I look at the, the sort of geopolitical connections. So let's just concentrate, for example, on the money trail. Um, as people know, I did the 9-11 Trillions documentary. If you don't know, please do look it up, um, where I talked about various aspects of the, the money trail. Now, one thing that I always come back to, the 9-11 Commission report said, we don't know where these uh, hijackers got their funding, but that is a question of, quote, little practical significance, end quote. I think that's actually of huge practical significance. In fact, it's the central and first uh, thing that you would look for in any criminal investigation. So how did they fund this? Well, that seems really important. There are a lot of different cookie crumb trails that you can follow there, and some of them I'm sure have been set um, by intelligence agencies as uh, false traps, but I'm, one of them is uh, Pakistani General Mahmoud Ahmad, the head of the ISI, having wired $100,000 to Muhammad Atta in the weeks coming up to the attacks, that kind of thing. There was lots of different things you could follow there. Um, there's a whole other story behind that, but uh, that that is something that I would hone in on. So where did the money for this come from? And what, you know, how, uh, just give me the official conspiracy theory about that. And how does that play into things? Now, what would convince me uh, that these were, the, these were Al-Qaeda trained hijackers that, uh, uh, that did exactly what they said they did and and it went down in the way that the uh, the government said it did the evidence that would convince me of that would have to involve um explanations for how they got their uh visas um through the visa express program that was instituted shortly before 9 11 and through which i can't remember 11 12 13 of them got their their uh their um their visas to enter the united states uh, I would have to see more detailed information um, about the actual uh, movements and boarding of these various passengers rather than the two or three grainy um, camera footage uh, shots that we've had of them actually boarding. I would have to have seen, I would have to have clarified the fact that it was announced that uh, several of the biographical details of the hijackers matched those of people who had trained at U.S. military bases in the, uh, the, the months and years prior to 9-11. Um, but that was dismissed a week or so after it was reported by saying, yeah, we looked into it and they're different people. <laughs> I would need more, a little bit more information about what biographical details matched. How did you look into it? What were the records of the people that were identified there? And uh, you know, why, why did uh, other people come out and say, yeah, that was my son, but he didn't die? <laughs> I would need a little bit more clarification on points like that. I would need more clarification um, from the DIA, for example, about Able Danger, the program that they were using to keep track of various terrorist threats that I uh, supposedly identified Mohammed Atta and others of the 9-11 hijackers, uh, alleged and so-called, in the uh, months and years prior to 9-11. I'd, I'd need more information from them about what they, they knew, wh when they were tracking them, what they suspected uh, that uh, being. I would need more information about Khalid Al-Maidar and uh, Nawaf Al-Hazmi, about their particularly their movements from um, the secret Al-Qaeda meeting that they were tracked at in Malaysia um, before coming to uh, the United States. Uh, being uh, the FBI knew that they had visas, they, uh, uh, sorry, the CIA knew that they had visas to enter the United States. They deliberately did not tell the FBI this. It's not that they just didn't pass that in, it's not our job to tell them. No, they deliberately made the decision not to tell the FBI about this. All of these pieces of this puzzle would have to be explained to me, set out evidence, here you go, da 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 da, instead of the 9-11 Commission report, which we got, which 
glosses over all of these points and does not provide any of that type of uh, detailed evidence. Um, that would have to be laid out for me in excruciating detail for me to even buy into the whole hijacker side of this. And then there's, I mean, as I say, there's the there's other aspects of the money trail. There's uh, there are the physical collapses of the buildings, which still uh, do deserve more of an explanation than uh, NIST's whatever 800-page report on the Twin Towers that says, and then global collapse ensued. <laughs> it's like there was this and this and this and this, and then global collapse ensued. Uh, I think I need a little bit more explanation about that 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 side of it. Uh, I, Again, my mind boggles at trying to come up with all of the different pieces because it's not like there's one thing. I have this one problem with this story and this one piece of evidence would solve it. No, there's each piece of the puzzle requires a hundred pieces of evidence to, to actually prove what is being said. And here's my, my point when it comes to this. The burden of proof is not on me to try to prove to you my, whatever my conspiracy theory about however 9-11 went down. No, 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 no. If you are the government and you are telling me it was Al-Qaeda directed by Osama bin Laden on dialysis in his cave in Afghanistan, actually he was uh, in Pakistan the night before 9-11, we know this and it's been reported on CBS News, so we knew exactly where he was uh, when 9-11 went down, but anyway, let's memory hold that report. Um, but if, you are, if that is your assertion, you have to prove it to me. You have to give me the evidence and all of the evidence and not classify it because, oh, you know, sources and methods. We can't we can't tell you how we know this, but trust us, we know this. No, I do not trust you. And I, until I see that evidence, I'm not going to believe it. You have to prove it to me, especially if you're going to get me to try to get on board with this uh, agenda to completely transform the Middle East and ultimately the world based on this foundational event, you have to provide the evidence to me. So as I say, I, I know that's not really the, the answer that Neil deGrasse Tyson is looking for, but that's because he's asking the wrong question. A uh, great book uh, came to mind when you mentioned the visas. Visas for Al-Qaeda by J. Michael Springman. Uh, that was a, a really good book. So Christopher Boleyn, oh, the, so, so many great things. Uh, my, my last uh, significant question, and then I have two other ones I want to throw at you quick. Uh, what is the message in the documentary, Children Full of Life, a uh, documentary that uh, you highly recommend? I, I would say that the fundamental message is that uh, our, our conception of what education is and what it should be has been, I think, severely limited. Um, by most of our experience, I won't speak for everyone, but certainly my experience going through the public school system in Canada, uh, you have a certain idea. Well, you're there to learn, you know, learn math for 40 minutes and then learn, you know, go to gym and play, play around for 40 minutes and then you go to science and you learn science for 40 minutes. And, and all of this is the idea, the fundamental idea that people think we have about what, what it is we're even doing in school, what it is about, we're supposed to learn some basic foundational knowledge that then we will be able to apply when we're older or something like that. Well, that's not really what's happening when we're at school anyway. We are being conditioned to look at this subject for 40 minutes and then turn and look at this subject for 40 minutes and follow the commandments of a teacher who will then grade us on our performance. We're learning a lot of things in school. It's not necessarily the things we think we're learning. Um, but I think that documentary uh, really shows when someone has a different conception of what education can be and should be and applies that and and brings out the humanity in children and treats them as human beings rather than 
just, you know, your student A, your student B, your student C, we're going to learn subject X. When you treat them as human beings and allow them to develop emotionally and find out the, the ways that they can grow together as, and, and find community with other people, it's a fundamentally different way of looking at education. And I, uh, I think it's a beautiful example of it. Um, if you can watch that without, without having a tear uh, come to your eye, I, I don't know what kind of human being you are. Uh, if you could get everyone in the world to read one book, what would it be? Wow. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm going to go left field on this one. Um, there's lots of important books on a lot of different subjects that I've covered um, over the years. So it would be difficult for me to think, well, I mean, uh, I, I mean, the Plot to Kill King, uh, Hidden History, Political Ponerology. I'm looking at all these books on my bookshelf that are important. But I'm going to go left field. I'm going to say, well, okay, I, I, here's a little story. And I'm already going over my allotted time, but <laughs> I hope you have time. Um, back in 2003, uh, uh, Billy Corgan of the Smashing Pumpkins, who at that time was in Zwan, <laughs> was out on tour uh, promoting Zwan's new album. And he was being interviewed by, I think, Billy Zane, who I think was a BBC guy. He was from Australia, but he was working for the BBC. I don't know, whatever. Uh, he asked him some question about, uh, this is a really, you know, kind of happy, poppy album, which is kind of strange for you. You're usually kind of dark. Um, but here we are in the middle of the Iraq war has just started, you know, there's all this, I mean, people are really upset. There's all this chaos happening. What do you, is this your artistic response to this? What are you doing? And, uh, Billy Corgan said at that time, well, uh, yes, I mean, all this stuff is happening. It's all crazy. Uh, it, it, all this stuff is, is preoccupying us, but this too will pass. This time will pass. And what is important is not necessarily what is happening right now. It's what kind of human beings will we be on the other side of this? What, 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 uh, what of our humanity will remain and in what form, in what shape? That was such a profound comment for me that really made me think about things because yes, here we are, we're 15 years later and the Iraq war, yeah, it was a huge thing. And it was, uh, you know, obviously for anyone who lived through that, that was a huge and important time, but here we are. And that time did pass. And now it's not Bush and the Iraq war. Now it's Trump and, Afghanistan and Yemen and all of this. I mean, yeah, different, different uh, defecation, same uh, orifice. But anyway, but the point is, yeah, well, what kind of human beings are we? Did we, What did we learn from that time? And what, what did we take away from that? Did we learn uh, the, the, the fundamental lessons about the tricks that politicians play and things like that? Well, it doesn't seem we did. So there's something more fundamental than simply knowing information, just data about various events that I could get from all sorts of different books on my bookshelf here. So there's something about the, the human heart, the, 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 the human condition, what it means to be a human and what, we, what kind of humans we can and should be. So on that note, I'm going to recommend from probably my favorite writer in the English language, William Faulkner, who talked in his Nobel Prize acceptance speech about um, uh, the, doing the, uh, recording the, 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 the whatever, the, 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 the workings of the human heart or something. I, I don't He said it very beautifully. <laughs> I would butcher it if I tried to paraphrase it. But his work was 
more about talking about the fundamental issues. Because uh, at that time he was addressing specifically everyone, you know, everyone is the Cold War. Everyone's just wondering, you know, when are we going to be blown up, basically? And he said, no, there's something more fundamentally important than that. It's about the human heart and the human condition and, and the soul and who we are. And so I will recommend Absalom, Absalom by William Faulkner, which is... <laughs> Not an easy book to read. It's an exceptionally difficult book to read. If you want an easy book by Faulkner, read As I Lay Dying, and then maybe read Sound and Fury, and then read Absalom, Absalom. But anyway, Absalom, Absalom is such a profound book about human nature and the meaning of legacy and building dynasty and, and what it, it, the things that motivate humans and, and all of this. I mean, it's such important stuff to, to know about ourselves and fundamentally about our psychology and who we are and what we're doing uh, that I think that's the type of thing that I want to direct people's attention to more than just the data and facts that uh, can be presented. It's what do we do with that and who are we when we go forward with that information. That, in the end, I think is more important. Which of your videos are you most proud of making? Final question, and then I'll let you go. Ah, uh, yeah, good question. I will say how and why Big Oil conquered the world. Um, that was, I mean, that when you put that together, that's the culmination of a decade of research. It, uh, everything I'd been doing to that point is, contained in those documentaries in some important way. So if there's one thing that I would I would want people to see, it would be that. Um, I hope that I can continue to do that type of work. But um, uh, again, I know it's not the easiest stuff to directly access. I should say 9-11 conspiracy theory. If, you know, five minutes, it's kind of funny, it's engaging. But ultimately, I think the more profoundly important work is how and why big oil conquered the world. Yeah, I was just at Ernie Hancock's house, and he uh, uh, he said, "Oh my God, you got to watch these. Some of the best research I've ever seen." So I also noticed you have that book, "The Rockefellers in American Dynasty" by David Horowitz. Mm -hmm. I remember reading that book, and then I was at an airport, and I saw Pendulette, and I threw it down, and I went over and shook Pendulette's hand. I said, "Thanks for introducing me to libertarianism," and I can't find the book ever since. So. Um, <laughs> I was so excited uh, for this interview, I forgot uh, my quote of the day. And the quote is, uh, the very same people who say that government has no right to interfere with sexual activity between consenting adults believe the government has every right to interfere with the economic activity between consenting adults. By and Thomas vice versa. <laughs> I know. I know. That, that, that's a great Thomas Sowell quote, just to uh, yeah. talk about the foundations of voluntarism. Mr. Corbett, thank you so much for coming on. I appreciate you having me on. Thank you for the time.